Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! <laughs> Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with people who know Vegas. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas. These days, success is all about planning. Whether it's for the beginning of the football season or the opening of a new hotel and casino, planning and preparation are the keys to fulfilling a dream. But how about planning for the worst, something that hasn't been a problem for over 100 years? In just a moment, you'll meet a man with Vegas ties whose organization was actually ready for the worldwide pandemic. Also on today's show, because of the pandemic, a lot of places aren't open. But in Vegas, you can still get any souvenir you can imagine at the Bonanza gift shop. Your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com, is here to discuss what you can expect. In the second half hour, once again, Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports Rockin' Tours. With the start of the NFL season this weekend, we thought it would be appropriate to chat with one of the NFL's most successful coaches and broadcasters, Dick Vermeil. But now... Time to get out your crystal ball. You ever predict something and really wish you hadn't predicted it because it's something that while you were right, you really hated seeing. Well, we have a case like that today. Norm Duvet is with us. He's the chief development officer for COPA Health. And COPA did something last year called planning for a pandemic. And boy, were they right. When you look back, Norm, is it kind of shocking of all the stuff you were planning for? Boy, happened and happened with abundance. You know, it, it is. It's so interesting. And by the way, thank you so much for having me on today. You know, when when we had the conference last year and we were going through all this information every year, and I think this is our seventh or eighth year in a row, um, we've had emergency preparedness conferences, and we've done everything from like mock boiler room explosions to active shooter drills and things like that. So last year when we did the planning for a pandemic, we thought, okay, this is a different type of subject. It's something that uh, you know people aren't going to be used to, but there's such such good information that we want to do it. So we had we had some experts come in, and um, frankly, you know, afterwards I, I kind of just you know counted my blessings that we had never gone through anything like that. Since 1918, there's never been anything, you know, that significant in the United States. Yeah, exactly. So, so talk about what what you guys worked on. I mean, does it look pretty much like we are to the situation we're in today? Yeah, it, it's it's eerie how much it was uh, um, on track, uh, on point for things that are happening today. So, when we talked about the PPE, when we talked about the sanitizing, we even heard some terms about social distancing last year. And, you know, at the time, I have to tell you, I really thought, well, okay, yeah, maybe in 1918 with the Spanish flu, that made sense. But I can't see anything like that happening today. And boy, was I wrong. So as you went through all that, did you share that with other people? I mean, because I, I, like you, I'm familiar with a lot of organizations that do these kind of things. But I haven't heard one for a pandemic. And so this was really interesting. And you, and you were saying for you guys, that was the first time that you addressed that subject. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting is um, we have a really great relationship with the state of Arizona Department of Health Services. We have a really fantastic relationship with Maricopa County Health Services. And, um, you know, obviously Maricopa County is the largest 
county in the state of Arizona population-wise. So a lot of times we would include them in our uh, emergency preparedness events. We would have, uh, you know, um, nurses come out or, uh, you know, officials come out for maybe an active shooter drill or the mock explosion that I was telling you about. Uh, so last year with the Department of Health Services, they said, listen, we'd like to help you out a little bit. We'd like to support your, your annual conference. But here's something that we're focusing on this year. And they were part of a national uh, effort called Crimson Contagion, which actually, you know, went through all 50 states through the federal government, um, you know, asking questions like, how prepared are you for uh, a um, contagion or a novel virus like the coronavirus that we have now? And we said, yeah, of course, uh, we would love to do that. So what we did is we reached out to all of the organizations that we've invited to our events in the past. So nonprofit organizations, uh, organizations that um, deal with the elderly, um, schools and uh, organizations that deal with children, and we got them involved. So every year we've had people involved, and last year we had a, a really great turnout. I think there was close to, you know, 200 people from all over the state of Arizona. And, you know, we, we had fantastic, uh, you know, giveaways. We had a, a binder, you know, with basically a game plan on how to handle things. We had a little medical kit that uh, had all kinds of uh, examples of uh, personal protective equipment and things that you would need. You know, working with those other organizations, we just, you know, saw such a, a need to get this information out. But we still didn't believe that we would have, you know, a situation like uh, the novel coronavirus that we have right now, the COVID-19 virus. Well, I would assume the COPA health staff takes a lot of pride in this because really these are the first responders. And to know that they were Nostradamus when it came to this were at least – it didn't shock them when it actually happened. It's like, okay, that was that's in our recent memory. What do we need to do? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because it didn't uh, it didn't shock us that uh, you know as far as being ready for it, but it did shock us that it was actually happening. And there's so many things that you still don't think about in situations like this. You know, the technology uh, dependency that we have right now, uh, the fact that we had to quickly pivot from in person event or in person meetings at our clinics to, you know, try to get our telehealth program up and running. And Copa Health did a fantastic job. I think we, uh, you know, shrunk the time frame from like an 18-month rollout that we had a plan to like uh, four or five days for our telehealth. So even though we were prepared, and we think we were as prepared as anybody, obviously, in the county, in the state of Arizona, and probably in the nation for our type of uh, business, um, we still found things that, uh, you know, were a little bit shocking to our system that we just didn't see coming. You know, for example, the the lack of personal protective equipment. We thought, well, we don't need to keep 50,000 masks on hand. We just need to pick up uh, the phone and order them when they come. And obviously there were difficulties with that everywhere. So how has this affected what you do? Because this obviously is a different year than any you've had in memory. So, so how did that affect everything? I mean, because I imagine the frustrating part is this takes up so much of the bandwidth that your regular great services get impacted. Well, you know, it is interesting because we have such a wide variety of services. We started out in the 50s, you know, dealing with uh, children who had developmental disabilities. Nine families in Mesa, Arizona, just could not find services for their children. That's how our organization has uh, started. But over the years, we have grown to do um, all types of things for, you know, many different types of individuals that have uh, developmental, intellectual disabilities, people that have uh, behavioral health issues, serious mental illness. And we have group homes. We have apartments that we run. We've got the largest employment-related services uh, for individuals with disabilities in the state of Arizona. Um, and also we have uh, 
eight clinics, uh, you know, that see people on a, a regular basis. So it was interesting because in some of the situations, we really had to, you know, soldier through with our group homes. We had to make sure that we had the protocols in place to make sure that the people that we had living there that we were taking care of were, you know, as safe as possible. In others, like our employment-related services, which is a huge, huge part of our organization, we had to see what we could make happen, you know, as the time allowed. So now we have, you know, some of those uh, devices that will measure your temperature when you're coming in. We do, you know, uh, uh, you know, we have questions that we ask everybody when they're coming in every day on whether or not they were feeling a fever and things like that. But as far as pivoting, the the clinics was the biggest, the clinics were our biggest challenge because everybody was coming into our clinics to see our, our physicians and our nurse practitioners and our counselors and our psychiatrists on a regular basis. And we had to quickly, you know, pivot with that. And the nice thing about it is the technology that we put in place and the protocols that we put in place, they can, you know, outlive COVID because they are, they are giving people the ability who might've been isolated before and really struggled to get to one of our clinics or get to their appointments. They are giving them the option now of seeing somebody um, as much as possible remotely. So we, we are really, you know, proud of that. So even though we did have those challenges in keeping the uh, business going, you know, we have a continuity of business plan. We feel like we've come up with some solutions that will help us far into the future beyond COVID. More with Norm Duvet, Chief Development Officer at Copa Health, in just a few moments. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Hey, I'm Paul Shortino, and you're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Rock on. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com. Hi, this is Dr. Annette of The Dr. Annette Show. We've been talking today about COVID-19 and steps you can take to possibly prevent or mitigate infection. Silver and zinc have been used for centuries as disinfectants and as antimicrobials. We're offering you this special discount to make it easier and more affordable to get these essential silver and zinc liquid mineral supplements. Visit our website at www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products. Once again, that's www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products. Professional line not included. We are all in this together and we can get through this. Learn more at elementalresearchinc.com and use the promo code VEGAS20. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Now, let's return to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Let's get back to our conversation regarding preparing for a pandemic with Norm Duvet, Chief Development Officer at Copa Health. First, but as I thought of it and I went through this, I go, no, that's exactly right. You don't even want to worry about that until you've taken care of the people you're looking at first. And going through any medical event or what have you, everybody knows, compassion's pretty important. If you don't have that, you're not really interested in what new machine we have or so forth. We got to get through this crisis together. So putting people first really is the philosophy of the organization. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I was part of the team that came down and came up with those values, the six values. And the thing that is so interesting about it is when you put people first, all of the others just seem to make sense. You you want to first understand what's going on with the person. And we are not just talking to the people that we serve. We're also talking about our employees. We're talking about our staff. We're talking about the families associated with the people that we serve. Because in the behavioral health field, especially with individuals who have serious mental illness, often the families feel locked out because uh, they don't have the access. So when we talk about people first, we obviously are talking about the members, the people that we serve, but we're also talking about our staff. We're talking about family. We're talking about the community. We try to look at the person first and make sure that we are doing the best for them. You just naturally get to innovation. I think it's really kind of a cool roadmap. So to keep doing this great work, you are a nonprofit. You count on events and so forth, and you have an annual event. And, of course, like everybody else, coronavirus has cut into your ability. So you're going to go in and do a virtual fundraiser. Talk a little about what you have planned for that and how we can get involved. Yeah, so um, obviously in the past, and I think this is uh, pretty much a model that's uh, you know a traditional model throughout the United States and the world. Uh, once a year, twice a year, you get people together in a room and you give them you know, maybe a, a, uh, a chicken dinner or something like that, and you have an auctioneer and you get up and you try to raise some money and try to tell your story. Well, our CEO, Dr. Sharna Jaffe-Piper, has been so innovative. She's like, hey, let's pivot and let's have a virtual event. So we started looking into it. And uh, anybody that is interested, you can go to copahealth.org. And right there on our homepage, you're going to see click here to learn more about our uh, virtual event. And what we're trying to do is put together uh, an event that is fun, that's informative, that lets people, uh, you know, not just know about the people that we serve, but see how they can help and have an impact with the people that we serve. Uh, we often talk about, uh, you know, when we have an in-person event, we've had events where we've had as many as 425 people in a ballroom, and that's a pretty, you know, good amount of people that you can have in a ballroom at a time. Well, with this, we are expecting, you know, the ability to have two, three, four thousand 4,000 people, you know, log in that night. So if you go to that site and you register, you're going to be able to log in that night and see about the organization. You're going to see some of the stories of the people that we're helping. You're going to find out what a uh, $50 donation can do. I mean, a $50 donation can feed the people in one of our group homes for a week. And we're talking four or five people plus staff. And, you know, food insecurity is such a big deal during COVID-19. I know the food pantries are really, really struggling to keep up. Um, we talk about, you know, connectivity. We might have somebody that we support, but they live independently and they don't have access to the technology that they need. Well, a $200 donation can buy an iPad, which will help allow them to make it to their medical appointments, you know, virtually. And it just makes such a big difference. So, yeah, um, copahealth.org and uh, the virtual event, event that we have is, uh, you know, featured on that page. 
And we're just hoping that we can get people to come out, learn more about the organization. We are wanting to expand, not just be beyond, you know, Maricopa County, because we're already throughout the state of Arizona. But in the next five years, we'd like to have locations in states that have similar, you know, needs that we have here in Arizona. And so uh, it's a good time for people to get to know about what we do here in Arizona, what we do at Copa Health, and uh, um, how they can have a positive impact on the people that we serve. Well, Norm, we're going to go to copahealth.org, get involved. Uh, one last question, because based on what you did the year before, what's the uh, annual uh, exercise going to be this year? I, I'm almost afraid to ask. <laughs> you know, no, I am glad that you asked, because last year with planning for a pandemic, we set the stage for how you would deal with something like we're going through right now. And we had uh, organizations, like I said, that deal with seniors. We had health organizations that deal with children, schools. We had other organizations that came on. They, uh, they have uh, group homes or maybe day programs for people with developmental disabilities. This year, you know, when we were trying to put it together, we thought, okay, how do we follow that up, considering the fact that everything we talked about last year is now coming to fruition? Unfortunately, I mean, 2020 is just a difficult year. And we started hearing about all these fantastic stories of how people pivoted, how organizations pivoted. And we're putting together, you know, um, a pretty decent documentary-style video with leaders of all these organizations throughout uh, Arizona and how they pivoted during the pandemic and how they were able to take uh, these really difficult situations and put together uh, programs that really helped enrich their organization and help the people that they serve. So this year it's called Resiliency During a Pandemic, and literally we're having a lot of the same people that we had last year um, but this year we're focused on what did you do this past year? How did you handle the uh, uh, COVID-19? We asked these people, you know, when you first heard about it, what did you think? And then when things started to get really difficult, how did you handle it? And what are some of the innovative solutions you came up with? So we're really excited this year um, on uh, September 10th to be uh, holding, once again, a virtual event called uh, Resiliency During a Pandemic. And uh, we're hoping that people will come out and get a lot of great information. That sounds good. Norm, thanks for chatting with us today. Really appreciate it. No, thank you so much for having me. And, uh, you know, I hope everybody's doing well out there. I, I do uh, weekly videos for our staff, and I always tell people, be safe. You know, just uh, you know, take care of yourself first because you can't take care of anybody else unless you're healthy and doing well. So thank you so much for having me. When you visit Vegas, do you like to bring home a gift for family and friends? The answer is yes, you might want to plan a visit to the Bonanza Gift Shop, which says it's the world's biggest. Is it a must-see, though? Let's ask your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com. I would say yes, and uh, they tout it as the world's largest gift shop. I have no idea how you would know that. Um, it's, it's a quirky destination. It's on the north side of the Strip. At one point, there were rumors about it being sold because it's right next to the, the Rock and Rio uh, music festival site. Well, that festival's not coming back. So it is a anything you can imagine that's Vegas related is for sale in that shop. And it's it has a long and glorious history. It's been it's changed hands several times, but it's just this kind of quirky collection of, you know, every kitschy, cheesy thing you can think of, every dice clock, you know, there's Elvis with the with the animated legs and the like every imaginable thing you can think of is for sale there. And it is huge. You could spend a day. And here's a an insider tip for you. What's the most popular item? for sale at the Bonanza gift shop. It's nothing you would think, it's not a keychain, 
It's not a fridge magnet. It is a a bird, an animated bird that uses bad language. It's an obscene bird. It is far and away their bestseller. Who knows why? But that's the that is the most popular item in that whole store. Thanks, Scott. Don't forget to visit VitalVegas.com every day for the absolute best in Las Vegas news. Remember, all of our shows are archived on our website, VegasNeverSleeps.com. You can also listen on SoundCloud, iTunes, and more. Coming up, Vegas Never Sleeps presents Sports Rockin' Tours. Today's conversation features the former coach of the Eagles, Rams, and Chiefs, and longtime NFL broadcaster Dick Vermeil. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Vegas, here we go! They were there when history was made. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Inside the 20. Touchdown! A Rackham Tour is a storyteller. Welcome to the Sports Rackham Tour. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! The Sports Tours dusts off the great American art of storytelling. From the players, coaches, media, the people who were there. Smith corks one in the right down the line. It may go. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. It's a home run. Go crazy. Now, here's Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Sports Rockin' Tours, the show that presents observations, recollections, and memories of a select group of storytellers who represent the past half-century or so of American sports. Well, believe it or not, it's football season. And without a preseason, the NFL kicks off this weekend with a full slate of games. It's all about winning, and when you think about a winner, former coach Dick Vermeil comes to mind. Guy who has won everywhere he's been, and he's also one of the most popular people in all of football. The NFL takes pride in great coaches. Many are connected to one team, like Lombardi with the Packers, Walsh with the 49ers, and Bilicek with the Patriots. But there are a few who've managed to win in a number of different cities. And one of the very best is with us today, Coach Dick Vermeil. Well, Coach, I want to start with you back at San Jose State. That's where I went to school a long time ago, initially. Your coach, I believe, was the same guy that I had teach a class, Bob Bronson. Yeah, Dr. Bronson, you bet. He was my coach my first year there, Bob Kitchell my second year. Then we, uh, Bob and I maintained, it was actually Dr. Bronson, uh, maintained a relationship all the way until his passing. Yeah, great man, very influential in my career. Well, that's what I was wondering, because I remember him in the class I was at saying that he recommended you and Bill Walsh for particular jobs, and they, they always put the same thing. He goes, if I had a son, I would want him to be Dick Vermeule. And I thought, what a compliment that is. Yeah, that really is. And he has, he has said that to me. You know, my first coaching head coaching job was at Hillsdale High School in San Mateo. And he called me up one day, Dr. Bronson did, and said, Dick, hey, so-and-so, is, uh, Frank Collin is going to call you from Hillsdale High School. He's the athletic director and retiring head football coach, and they're going to hire you. Just say yes. 
<laughs> That's great. Well, I went to Sarah High School, which was really close to Hillsdale High School, and you know, oh, yeah. you, you were well known at that time. I lost to him three years, uh, three years in a row. <laughs> yeah, Sarah had a powerhouse for a while. Oh, there. <laughs> you bet they had. Yeah, they had good football teams. You, you yeah. bet, really good teams. Well, I think it's interesting too when you were at San Jose State quarterback and you played against Tom Flores. Boy, two great coaches. Who knew that you would come uh, battle again in the Super Bowl? Yeah, good coach, good person. Yeah, he's a great guy. And of course, he he beat me in the Super Bowl, and he also beat me when he was at COP, and I was at San Jose State. So you get your first big shot is down at UCLA, and that had to be exciting. You're going into the Pac-8, and UCLA was not like USC or some of those schools that were always good. Sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. And you got them to the Rose Bowl. Yeah, our second year there, we beat SC to go to the Rose Bowl. Then we upset Ohio State, and that's the what drew the attention to the Philadelphia Eagles owner, Leonard Toast, to fly out there and offer me the Eagle coaching job. So a lot of things happened when I was at UCLA. Great place to work at that time. I'm sure it still is. It's a lot more modern out there, more buildings. We didn't even have a weight room for the football team when I was there. Wow, yes, it's a whole nother world. And what was it like? Because you spent your whole career on the West Coast, and then you head off to Philadelphia. I mean, that's kind of a cultural change, wasn't it? Yeah, not so much for me because it was all football. I was in behind closed doors all the time around the field. For my wife, out in the community and in the shops and the grocery stores, she found it to be a very difficult adjustment in contrast to California. Not bad, but just totally different. It took Carol and my three kids uh, a full year to make the adjustment. And that makes sense because it is a different cultural setting. But one thing you picked up on right away, and I guess you've done this throughout your entire career, is you seem to get into the history. I know like with Chuck Bednarik had been uh, separated from the Eagles for a while, and you made sure that he was brought back in. That's kind of important to you, right, to, to remember that history and to help set up a new culture. Well, you know, Chuck Bednarik was a symbol of winning, and it's been a long time since the Eagles had won. And I met him at a scholar-athlete banquet one night, and I heard him telling uh, stories, and he wasn't sort of upset with the Eagles and the ownership and that kind of stuff. And so I went over and introduced myself and said, hey, let's get together and drink some wine and just talk about the future of the Eagles. He said, sure. So a week later we met. We drank more than one bottle of wine together. I asked him to be an honorary coach on Sundays and come to practice when he can. And so he did. We paid him a stipend, not much. But it ended up building a great, great relationship between Chuck and I and Emma. Emma's still living, God bless her, at 97 or 8 years old. Uh, wonderful lady. And uh, Chuck was a special piece of work. That's why he's in the Hall of Fame. That was the last time, really, they had won. You know, they hadn't been in the playoffs. That goes back to 1960. And you get them in there. Uh, when you came in, how do you change the uh, culture? Because they weren't used to winning. Well, a lot of it is changing the people recognizing those you have in the program that are willing to change their way of doing things and really go to work and then eliminate those that don't and then only bring new players in that will meet your philosophy and work standards and and it gives you a chance and we didn't have any draft choices my first three years too so we just added practice time we figured we figured if you stayed on the field longer you could get better thinking this there's no correlation between working less and getting better. I learned that a long time ago. So we just worked very, very hard, and fortunately we started winning. We got lucky on certain guys like Robert Montgomery and Carl Harrison, Charlie Brown, and we traded for the, the Hall of Fame, Claude Humphrey, who was, had been retired, so we brought him out of retirement. 
you know, so we were, you know, Harold Carmichael was here, here, Bill Berge was here, Frank Lamaster was here. So, you know, we had some players, and uh, it amounted to 12 guys off the original roster in 1976, went to the Super Bowl in 1980 that were on the roster when we took the team over, only 12 guys. But, you know, I think this work ethic you have, one of the reasons people buy into it is not only does it work and you see winning, but also you're a good guy. I mean, everybody has said that. These people all talk about you that played there. Do you think sometimes that the fact that they know it's not baloney, that you really care about them, will make them work harder when you when you try to tell them to do this? This is something people buy into because they can see the results. Well, they always have to buy into you before they buy into your process. If they trust you, they'll listen to you, especially true in the NFL, uh, to even more so today. But you, you get them to trust you by being sincere, being honest, and letting them know you care. And the reason you're, you explain why you're working them hard and what you're doing it for and to help them uh, get better so they can play in the league longer and make more money and be more successful than, and have something left when they leave the league. And, and then make sure you don't bring people in that counter all your beliefs and then the beliefs that you've developed in your players. So it becomes a real, they say culture. I say it also becomes a community. Well, and I thought what was interesting, I remember the 1980 Super Bowl, I was covering the Raiders at the time, and everybody, uh, you know, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback, and they're all saying, well, you were too hard on the guys in New Orleans, and that was a difference. But every single Eagle I ever talked to or ever read never went along with that kind of thing. It, you know, they knew what they were in with because they had bought into this a long time before. Yeah. Well, you know, the reason we won the NFC Championship game was because of our work ethic, okay? The reason we lost to the Super Bowl was because of our work ethic. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> yeah. you can't please everybody all the time. We lost the Super Bowl because we played minus turnover football, and offensively we just couldn't get untracked. That's all. And they did. A, a Raiders deserved to beat us. That's all. And it was, they were a better team that day. That happens. You know, unlike the NBA, Unlike Major League Baseball, it's not a series of best of seven. It's the right. best of one. Right. Yeah. And, but when you get to that level, right, anybody can win. I mean, you really get to the point where there's not so much an upset anymore because you got two quality people from a quality league. I mean, just to get there says something about the team. Yeah, that's a good statement, Steve. I'll tell you this. It takes the same thing to get there and lose because I've done it and get there and win. In fact, my Eagles team did more with less and took longer to get there and lose than my Super Bowl winning team of St. Louis did in three years. They worked harder and longer. They put more into it, but we just get it done that day. We will be back with former Super Bowl winning coach Dick Vermeil in just a moment. You're listening to Sports Rockin' Tours with Stephen Maggi. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. 
Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com. Welcome back to Sports and Tours. You're listening to former NFL head coach Dick Vermeil. Do you feel for guys like Bud Grant and Marv Levy that had these great teams, and, and people remember that, and what they don't remember is how hard it is to go to four Super Bowls? Uh, yeah, that achievement is unbelievable. They're unbelievable. They're just great coaches, and they're both in the Hall of Fame. What was it like? You know, I wanted to ask you about Leonard Toes because he hired you and so forth. You know, I didn't I didn't know him very well at all, but people used to say he was kind of uh, eccentric, much like a, like a Charlie Finley would be in baseball. So, was he hard to work with, or was he pretty easy for you? He was very easy. Yeah, he wanted to win, and he was very frustrated. And he got to the point yeah, of just turning the football over to a coach like myself, and and say, "Go coach my football team." He was he was very pleasant. He was very very nice to me. And then you, you take a break and. What was it? Well, obviously that worked out because when you came back, you actually won a Super Bowl and you proved that that wasn't a fluke. You were winning back then. What was it? You just needed some time uh, to, to really to, to get, you know, kind of your philosophy settled or what? No, well, really, I, I allowed a passion to be, become an obsession when I was coaching in Philadelphia. I was, I was a mess, okay? And I just I wasn't as good a football coach as I thought I should be in the frame of mind that I was in. A, a win did not last very long and a, uh, a loss lasted forever and so i decided to take a break i didn't plan to be out 14 years but i went into broadcasting i enjoyed it they paid you twice as much money to broadcast the game you know once a week than coach it seven days a week okay twice as much money (laughs) in the old days they did not pay football coaches you know a lot of money so anyway i enjoyed it and i had opportunities to go back but i i didn't want to find myself in the same hole i was in when i left so i just stayed away and i turned down some good opportunities and the rams had offered me the job this was the third time they were offering me the job. So uh, I finally said, you know, if I don't go back now, I, yeah. I never will. So I'm going to do it. And I went back. And I'm so thankful for John Shaw, Georgia Frontier, and, and uh, Jay Zygmunt that, that they gave me the opportunity because they, they helped me make it work. What people don't realize is you were still into the game. You were talking to everybody. Did you find that time off actually helped in terms of talking to all the different coaches and preparing for the game and getting philosophies there and thinking of things? And, and just, you know, you never got away from it, but you looked at it from a different perspective. Well, you know, I, I was always right. You know, I never lost a game in 14 years. But, yeah, you know, it, it, it gave me an opportunity to evaluate other coaches' methods, locker room attitudes, player attitudes, uh, coaching attitudes, coaching philosophies, work ethics. And uh, every week it was like in a different classroom. And I did the first five years I did 90% college games and 10% NFL games. And then the next nine years I did 90% NFL games and 10% college games. So I was around the best coaches. Got to so many great coaches. You know, you know, Tom Coughlin was one of the best I ever saw coach, and that was at Boston College. Well, that's what John Gruden says, and it seems like that's the only thing I've seen that's kind of comparable to what you went through. Is he, he went to broadcasting as well. It'll be interesting to see if he's able to have the same kind of success you did. He says he well, got a lot out of that. I think he can. I think he can do it. I really do. I believe in John Gruden. I've, I've known him since he was a graduate assistant at University of Tennessee working for Johnny Major. So that's a long time ago. And, and I respect him. I've coached against him. He's beaten my butt. And I, 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 know, I know what he is. You know, he's a football guy. 
And I think he's a hell of a football coach, and uh, I really look for him to be very successful before this fifth year. Then you go to the Rams, like you were saying, and sometimes you're just living right. Kurt Warner, talk about how you got him. Well, he was recommended to us by a coach that was coaching in the World League, the NFL Europe. And he called us and asked if we would sign him and then assign him to go play in Europe. Because if, if he was on my roster, I could send him to any team I wanted to in Germany. So I, we signed him because we liked to work out. It wasn't outstanding, but he had to work out. You could see he could throw it. We needed another quarterback for training camp, a camp guy. Uh, never did we expect to get what we got. We sent him over to Europe. He played 10 games. He was the best player over there in 10 games. While he was playing there, we found a guard over there that play, ended up being our starting left guard in the Super Bowl, okay, playing on the same team in Germany. But, you know, he went way beyond expectations. What he really needed was a sincere opportunity, not just a tryout, a real opportunity. And when it was dropped in his lap and he became the starter, he never played a game like a rookie. You know, that's which is the, I've never seen anybody do that. And now you listen to these guys that draft these number one, number ones and all this kind of stuff. Well, we're going to groom him. You know, so-and-so, the, the starting quarterback is going to work with him and help him mature. Heck, Kurt Warner was maturing in the arena league. So if you have it, you got it, you can use it. He was went way beyond expectations. It was great for the city of St. Louis, who had suffered through Cardinal football for so many years, and to have that Rams team come in there, and uh, and it was great to see you back there. It just was one of those things where everything seemed to work, and, and that Tennessee Super Bowl must have been the highlight of uh, your life, I would think, football-wise. Oh, it was one of them. When you get there, you realize it's just a football game. That's what you're doing in the Super Bowl. You're playing a football game. But you know what I really think of all the time is all the coaches that helped me get there, the administrators, the scouting department, the Charlie Armies, the, you know, the Mike Marches, the Al Saunders, the Jim Hannapins, all the coaches. We worked in three years to get there and win that thing. Uh, John, uh, uh, geez, we had so many good assistant coaches. you know. And uh, Frank Gann Sr., our special teams coach, one of the finest coaches I ever worked with. you know, Those kind of guys uh, – uh, just made a difference in that football team. You know, it, Kurt Warner goes from the most valuable player on the scout team in 1998 to the most valuable player in the NFL in 1999, okay? Yeah. No, but that's why he's in the Hall of Fame. Nobody's ever done it before. No one will ever do it again. And then Kansas City, which uh, you didn't uh, win the world title, but I know people who live in Kansas City love that time because, again, you made a proud franchise proud again. Are, were you happy to see them win the Super Bowl just for the people out there? Oh, yeah, starting with the ownership, starting with the Hunt family. Wonderful people. Just, you know, I'm just, the only disappointment there is Lamar Hunt was not alive to see it happen. He was one of the finest men you could ever meet, let alone be in the NFL as an owner. But the Kansas City people were wonderful people to work for. I had a great coaching staff. We had a great offense. We were probably the best offense over a five-year period in the NFL at that time. But we just couldn't stop people enough to win a big game in the playoffs. So we had two teams with legitimate, legitimate Super Bowl contenders. You know, that was 2003 when we won nine straight, went undefeated, and then ended up 13-3. and three. And then uh, we went 10-6 uh, and six my last year there, and we didn't get in the playoffs. But uh, that's why I'm excited about them adding an extra playoff game because a team can win 10 because you're in the wrong division, not get in the playoff. Someone wins 8-8 eight and eight can get in another division. It's not right. You talk about stress. A head coach, you know, and now they look at him and they make a lot of money, but how many jobs can you have out in the, out in the world where something beyond your control, it could put you out of the sport forever or, or you know, get you out of a position right. where you're at? You know, John Wooden told me one time, it's really very difficult to evaluate who does the best coaching job. The best football coaches or the best basketball coaches are the coaches that get the most out of the talent they have, regardless of the win-loss record. 
He says, uh, there are teams that win in spite of the coaches. There are teams that win because of the coaches. Okay. What you strive to be is at the caliber of a coach that no one else could coach your team better than you're coaching. That's what I strive to do. As I thought about knowing you and what you were doing at that time, the one thing that differentiated you from a lot of coaches is players around the league almost spoke with reverence about you. And I mean, they, they knew you cared about them as a person, not just a football player. I mean, is that something you've always carried with you throughout your career from back from Hillsdale High School all the way through? Well, I think you've got to be who you are. Because I, I was at Hillsdale High School, all of a sudden a coach in St. Louis Ram doesn't mean I'm a different person. I'm just older. Right, right, exactly. I've never stopped being a high school football coach. I still look at those guys as kids. I still think they're kids, you know, and they're not. And I have great relationships with a lot of former NFL players and people that played for me because we had a mutual trust and respect for each other. And we gave each other the best we had to give and and didn't second guess them. And uh, building relationships is the only way you can build trust. You know, trust trust is not physical. You can't build it by lifting weights. It's an emotional thing. It's an emotional thing, and the only way you build deep trust is through solid relationships. Hey, really great to catch up with you and chat. Thank you so much, Coach. All right. Appreciate it. You take care. More with Dick Vermeil on our expanded podcast, available soon on the Vegas Never Sleeps website, which you should visit often, and always check out the Sports Rock and Tour page. You can hear bonus content from this conversation, plus a number of other great sports stories. Don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Manchin. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com.